Knowledge Sessions. Hello and welcome to this podcast from RCVS Knowledge, whose mission is to advance the quality of veterinary care for the benefit of animals, the public and society. I'm Lara Kareem, and today I'm delighted to have with me Amanda Bogue, President of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, for this discussion on saving lives, the use and value of checklists in a clinical environment. In addition to her presidential role, Amanda is Clinical Director at Vets Now, where she has worked since 2008, overseeing clinical and professional standards. Prior to that, she was a lecturer in emergency and critical care at the Royal Veterinary College for five years, where she was heavily involved with running both the referral and first opinion emergency service, as well as teaching on veterinary undergraduate, postgraduate and veterinary nursing programmes. Amanda was president of the European Society of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care from 2011 to 2014, and for the following four years, she was both a founding trustee of the British College of Veterinary Specialists and founding president of the European College of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care. Amanda, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So to kick off our discussion, could you provide some background on checklists for people new to the concept? How did checklists come about and how have they evolved? So checklists are a topic I feel passionate about in terms of the improvements in patients' care that they can potentially bring. They're relatively new in veterinary medicine, but they have a long history in in other industries. Um, So they they probably started actually after the very um, terrible incident in Chernobyl, which um, some of the older listeners may remember, some of our newest graduates may not not remember it, but this was uh, when a nuclear reactor exploded in in, um, the old USSR back in the 80s. And at that time, there was a lot of work to try and understand why. And the real concept of um, a safety culture started to be introduced in terms of making sure that when you were working in industries where safety was critical, having a series of checklists and points that were checked regularly to prevent disasters happening was important. And that led to the development of this safety culture concept, which started, as we said, in the nuclear industry, but then moved very much into aviation. Um, And we've learned a lot from um, what the aviation industry has learned in terms of preventing um, airline crashes. Uh, And then more recently, it's moved over our human medical colleagues picked up um, on it as a a concept really in the late 1990s and now uh, really the last sort of five years probably but with increasing rapidity um, the veterinary profession is also embracing it And, and with good reason we work in a very complex environment there's lots of things that have the potential to go wrong our brains are very busy um with thinking through clinical knowledge it's easy to forget i mean not, not for any malign reason but just just to forget there are many stakeholders it, it's it seems to me who, who can benefit from checklists and why, yeah. why are they so valuable in the yeah. industry well so i think you're absolutely right uh, i think all of the potential um uh, stakeholders or people involved with taking care of animals it's a benefit to so and i think that stems from the fact that we recognize that uh, the clinical environment we work in is is very complex and there's lots of potential 
for errors to occur. And those errors, uh, again, in human medicine, there's been a lot of work done sort of categorising those errors. Um, and if, if you can, they're actually listed on one of the slides that accompanies this podcast. So you can go and review these if you like. But there's uh, things, you know, challenges with diagnosis. So um, is, there, is, is a diagnosis made too late? Um, is a, a certain test forgotten? There's errors with treatment. So errors, you know, technical errors, but errors with drug calculations, errors with timing of doses. Um, I said delays in doses. Um, in the broader sense, there can be errors with uh, providing preventative care. And then there's other errors as well in terms of the whole team that we work with. So failures of communication, failures of equipment, um, etc. So in our really complicated environments, there are a huge number of errors and nobody, no veterinary professional, whether vet or nurse, goes into work in the morning thinking, I want to make a mistake. They just, they just don't. And yet mistakes do happen. And that is a product of, as I said, that really complicated environment that we work in. Um, and so that and when mistakes do happen, that has a huge impact on the healthcare professional as well. So the veterinary surgeon or veterinary nurse who or, or it's often multiple people who are involved with the, the lead up to to an error. So that has can have a huge impact on the well-being of the veterinary professionals as well. So, again, checklists can help reduce that impact mm. or because it makes errors less likely. Clearly, the animals themselves, um, we want to be providing the best possible patient care to them. And, and again, um, errors with drug dosing or forgetting things um, can, can have an impact. And then obviously we have that triangle that's different to human health care with, with the owners of the animals as well, where, where we are, um, they obviously care very much about their their pet and we want to be able to reassure them that we're doing everything possible to make sure their pet gets the best possible care so so it does have a the the use of checklists can have a very positive impact across the whole veterinary team for the patients and and for their owners so what can we learn from human healthcare's use of checklists uh, both in terms of positive outcomes and potentially less successful approaches yeah, no, that's a great question. So I think there's a lot we can learn from human healthcare, and they obviously have bigger and more evolved systems. And I think we can learn a lot both about the value of checklists, but also how to introduce them so that they become something that is seen as a positive thing by the healthcare professionals rather than as just another sort of tick box exercise. So it started, I mean, that the, said the move in human medicine really came about in the late 90s. There was um, a study put out by the Institute of Medicine in 1999 called To Err is Human. And it started talking about that fact that errors are really a product of the system, that it's not individual healthcare professionals mm. who are deliberately making errors. It's a product of that system and environment they're working in. And one of the quotes, um, again, it's, it's on one of the slides that accompanies this presentation, but I, I quite like, I quite, it, it, um, it really brings home the importance of systems. They say errors can be prevented by designing systems that make it hard for people to do the wrong thing and easy for people to do the right thing. For example, cars are designed so that drivers cannot start them while in reverse because it prevents accidents. And that just makes so much sense, doesn't it? I mean, most of us drive cars. And of course, if you could start it accidentally in reverse, I suspect there would be a number more people having having unfortunate incidents and so so it, it just shows that when we put thought into the whole system to make errors less likely that can have um, a really huge huge benefit there's better data we're starting to collect data in the veterinary industry now on um, 
the number of errors. There are uh, a number of um, sort of the larger veterinary groups, but also um, RCVS knowledge, um, the, the vet safe system through the VDS that are starting to, to actually collect uh, some data actually relevant to our profession. But uh, I think we can probably rest assured that it's not going to be that dissimilar to, to medicine. And certainly in human medicine, um, there was a big study in the States that uh, the Harvard Medical Practice Study that showed that 4% of hospitalised patients suffered significant adverse events and 30 percent of, the, of these were due to what's classified as human error although as I've said it's going to be humans being put in a position where they make mistakes yes. by accident rather than deliberately and in the UK there's an NHS study that showed that around 10 percent of patients admitted to the NHS experience a patient safety industry incident and up to half of those could be prevented and in any year, 72,000 incidents may contribute to the death of the patient. So we're talking, we're talking about a big problem here. And I think that our goal and one of the ch- checklists are only part of it, but one of the real benefits of checklists is starting to try to reduce those, reduce those numbers. Uh, so what what can we learn? Well, from the human side, and I think that uh, you know one of the first checklists that was introduced in the human medical world was relating to um, um, surgery. So the patient, the, the surgery safety checklist, yes. which uh, was um, came about as part of a project from the World Health Organization. Some of you listening may have heard of, of one of my heroes, um, Atul Gawande. Mm-hmm. Um, and if any of you haven't read his books or listened to, actually he did the wreath lectures for Radio 4 a few years ago, and they're, they're absolutely wonderful to listen to. So he was one of the most... I guess public faces of that project, although um, you know, as, as with anything, there's large teams involved, and they started to develop um, a surgical safety checklist that uh, aimed to uh, reduce morbidity and mortality, uh, and they trialled it in a number of hospitals around the world, so a number of different healthcare environments, and it was it's I. I think, and I might be speaking, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be 100% common to this, but my understanding is it's the single intervention that's had the biggest impact on surgical mortality since the development of aseps- asepsis. So that shows the scale of the yes. scale of, of what we can achieve. So they, fa- they found there's a New England Journal of Medicine article published in 2009, which showed that the death rate was 1.5% pre-checklist and just 0.8% following checklist introduction. And with 234 million human operations that a year, that equates to over a million and a half lives saved. And just from simply checking a bit of paper, making sure everyone knows who that who who's who in the room, what procedure they're doing, have they thought through potential complications that might happen and are they prepared for them. The the checklist, they're not particularly complicated, Mm. but just having everyone prepared and having people think through and make sure that um, they've sort of scenario planned for things that can go wrong clearly does have a big impact then on, on outcome, which is great. I think one of the other things you can I mean, you asked about some of the problems was that um, they've also done uh, a lot of work, obviously looking at how checklists are implemented. Yes, and I think that's where we can learn a lot as well. That um, I think as 
veterinary professionals, we are trained to be, to be autonomous in our decision making and it's, it's absolutely crucial that we do understand physiology, anatomy, pharmacology, etc. And that in any one patient, we're using all of our critical faculties to think about what's best for that patient. So there can be a resistance, uh, and I think it's the same in the medical profession, a resistance to introducing a, something that's seen as being administrative or too mm. simple or, or you know, uh, somehow interfering with that clinical autonomy and so it really is about winning hearts and minds round with that sense that it's, it's not about trying to take anyone's clinical decision making away it's actually about freeing your brain up from doing some of those more mundane tasks so that you can actually use it for those decisions and thought processes that really do require higher level thinking but they've done some nice studies um, looking at uh, introduction of a checklist into human hospitals and um, finding that you know there are there are always going to be as with any new thing some people who are very strong advocates a lot of people sitting passively in the middle and then a few people who are deeply hostile but there was a uh, one um, I can't remember the exact numbers but there was one study that Atul Gawande quotes a lot where they asked a, a bunch of human surgeons how many of them were happy content to use checklists and I can't remember what the figure was but you know 60-70% something like that uh, and then they asked if it was their child being operated on how many of them would want the surgeon operating on their child to use a checklist and it was pretty much 100% said oh, yes. So, so I think it is about as we as we in the veterinary profession look to ways of um, improving um, our systems rather than just our individual um, clinician knowledge and skills really um, having those conversations making sure people understand this really is about providing the best possible patient care it's not about trying to take anyone's autonomy away or adding in extra administrative burden there's a really powerful case for improvements in patient care that are made absolutely and i think it's really interesting and um, we talk about the kind of liberating um, potential of using checklists to to free your mind to focus on yeah. perhaps other more involved uh, complex Processes, questions yeah. uh, in, in a treatment scenario and I'm wondering whether some of that scepticism, I'd be interested to know your view, um, might be due to some bad press that checklists have had sometimes in, in other industries, and in, in social care. I know, in, in, you know we've heard about scandals a few years back where reportedly an over-reliance on checklists might have been a contributing factor to, to some difficult childcare situations right. where, where yeah. potentially the professionals involved you know, were heavily focusing on, on, on yeah. the tick box exercise potentially rather yeah. than looking back. At, and of course this is something in the press, it might yeah. well be magnified, but I wonder if there's you know, that as part of the scepticism and yeah. it's interesting to hear, hear your view that in fact they're liberating rather than you know, yeah. constraining. Yeah, totally. So I, I, yeah, and I, I don't know where the resistance comes from. When you write it, it may come from that sense that um, if we as professionals just become rule followers then considering the complex nature of the situations we deal with of course a set of rules can never account for everything so so I think you're right that might be part of the resistance that sort of feeling that um, you know we understand the complex that that's the complexity of what we see and that if there's a perception that checklists are taking it back to you have to do x y and z then that could be to the detriment of care um, I think there is also just that that sense that I think we are it is about the system and we are trained largely to 
as individuals. Um, mm. And again, there's interesting work about um, you know the importance of teamwork training in healthcare environments, and actually yes. how that's really again in its in its infancy. I think we're taught very much as individuals, and of course, as individual professionals, we have to be responsible and accountable for our decisions. But probably how we fit into that wider framework is is probably not emphasised enough, I think. And, and again, that might be part of it, that, that checklists are about that wider framework and not about you as a person. Because if you say to any individual vet, um, would you, I'm just thinking of a very simple example, would you, um, you know, take, if you're doing surgery, would you take the, the wrong leg off? Like, of course, of course I wouldn't. And yet it happens. Uh, and it's not, so again, it's about trying to recognise that, um, you know, we as individuals, of course, know that you wouldn't take the wrong leg off or you wouldn't give a 10 times overdose or whatever. But actually, when we put us in that environment, those kind of things happen and it's not your fault. I think mm. people sometimes think it would never happen to them, but it can happen to any of us. Mm. Um, and recognising those 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 systems. I mean, one of the, as you mentioned in the intro, my background is, is very much, and my clinical specialty is emergency and critical care. And we know that the, that, that environment, the emergency environment, is um, particularly prone to errors, mm. again, because of a number of different factors in terms of um, uh, the, the fact that uh, you know the caseload is very um, is, isn't spread evenly through the day. Mm. There's real peaks and troughs of caseload activity. Um, it often involves working out of hours, and we we all know that. However, even if you are, even if all your work is out of hours, and you are sort of you're, you're shifted, you know, our, our human brains are not designed to be at their most alert at, yes. at four a.m. Um, so there's a lot of different um, factors that impact on that environment and make it more more likely that errors can occur. There's also um, very, uh, and, and this, bears, <laughs> I know this is, this is so true from my, uh, from my own uh, experience on the clinic floor, that, you know, in a busy emergency environment, you are constantly getting distracted. Mm-hmm. So you might be halfway through a task with a patient, you know, writing up a kennel sheet or, or even just thinking about a patient and um, someone will approach you, maybe it's a nurse, to say that one of the dogs is, in the kennels has vomited and at the same time a receptionist calling you to say that they've got a phone call about an animal with problem Y. So you are constantly being distracted and that makes it very, very easy to miss stuff. Yes. I, it happens in real life, in, in outside the clinical world as well. I know as a, as a, a mother of, of, of two children, I couldn't get both kids out of the door in the morning with the right school things unless I had a checklist, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so it's not just, I mean, that, that process of, of having a system yes. to help you make sure that you don't make mistakes and you know, take the wrong leg off or, you know, forget a key bit of, of school equipment. Yes. You know, that, that is, it's very much the same concept. It's when, relevant to the human condition. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, I think some all of the, the research that's going on about how our brains work um, is, is, is really, really interesting. And particularly, I think, to, to the point we made earlier, that by using checklists, what you're doing is you're taking away a lot of that mundane stuff. Yes that actually, you know, that you, you don't want to have to be thinking about so that your brain can focus on the higher cognitive tasks. So, um, so yeah, I think it, it, yeah, it has analogies across many areas of life. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. We talked a little bit earlier about data and uh, gathering data and the, the appetite for data. I'm interested in how we ensure checklists used by different teams 
and indeed different practices um, meet a similar standard and are based on the same or equivalent evidence? Do you have thoughts in that area? <laughs> no, that's a, that's a really good question. I think there is a... a um, so I think there is a purist view of checklists. So when used in their purest sense, only contain critical steps and common areas of error. Now, in the veterinary industry, we probably don't have the data to sure, for sure. I mean, we have a wealth of experience and there's anecdote, but we don't necessarily have the data. Having said that, things like the surgical safety checklist, where um, we've adapted the human one for veterinary use, is based on the data that's been collected. Um, you know, the human healthcare systems just said are more evolved, and it's it's they're larger and it's easier to collect sure. those big data sets. So, typic, I mean, a purist checklist is when there's just critical steps. As you said, it's based on common areas of error. It's not kind of a, it's not a recipe to follow. It, yes. it is a. a uh, a list of really crucial things, usually typically uh, typically grouped by defined time periods. So you know during surgery, after surgery, etc. And then that confirmation that the action's been completed either verbally or or by by a, by a tick. Um, now certain procedures like doing surgery, there are aspects of that that are very suitable for that very defined checklist, and that's probably more similar to what's used in the aviation industry mm-hmm. where you know, before a plane takes off, and I'm on a plane lots at the moment, so I'm very grateful that I know that when any of the planes that I'm on take off, the pilots have gone through a, is this bit working, is this bit working, <laughs> you know, all the critical Indeed. steps before they take off. Um, I think in the veterinary world, it's going to be interesting to see how they evolve, because actually the number of processes we have where there are those, there is that data to back it up, but also that we have those really critical safety steps is probably a bit more limited because unlike human healthcare where you can come up with in a particular healthcare system, there is the best way to treat problem X. In the veterinary profession, we're obviously, um, we're essentially private healthcare providers. So not only are we juggling what's best clinically for the animal, Mm. we have to bring in what the owner both wants emotionally that that all they you know we, we know owners can be very different in terms of the level of intervention sure. they want for their pets but also financially what they can afford so um it's one of the interesting discussions that i have internally with that with the vets now team as we're developing more checklists and we've also had with um some of our colleagues um, um at the vds in terms of what what actually is a checklist for the veterinary industry do we need a different word mm. but i think the the bottom line is that um there's some checklists like the surgical one that probably are based on good albeit translatable data and are true checklists and then there's other scenarios so for example we've developed a checklist i use that using that word advisedly now for cesarean sections so suggesting um you know that the animal you know when an animal comes in and you're considering a cesarean have you thought about um, you know all the different different options in terms of imaging the animal, checking blood work, etc. But we're not saying you have to do it because mm. we know that for certain clients that's not possible. It's more about that aid memoir to say, yes. have you thought about doing this? And if you're not doing it, have you actively made the decision not to do it yes. for justifiable reasons? So prompts for consideration. So it's pro- exa- exactly. So, so so I think it's going to be very interesting as the veterinary um, profession evolves these cultural. Um, 
focus on systems as opposed to purely individual knowledge that some things will be suitable for checklists like mm-hmm. surgical safeties probably some others like maybe blood transfusions setting up drug constant rate infusions etc there may be situations where a checklist is the right thing to do mm-hmm. uh, and in the purest sense there may be other situations where we need yes a sort of a, a guidance checklist I, I, the checklist approach that systems-based approach to making sure due consideration has been given to everything yes. but not um, necessarily a checklist in the pure sense of the of word course. where it's it's critical safety steps that have to be done before something happens yes yes and in terms of less the data but the the uniformity of checklists yeah. i mean obviously at rcvs knowledge pod what we're doing is encouraging people to yeah. to provide us with their checklist so that yeah. um, different practices people yeah. that are working in different um roles across the industry can look at them hopefully find them useful think well do we need to tweak it for this yeah. situation so i suppose there's a question of how how do we beyond that that you know website and, and various channels yeah. that come from us how do we how do we encourage that that sharing of, of, of checklists? And how important is it, do you think, that they need to be 100% uniform? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. So I, I think considering the variety of environments we work in, it, in within the veterinary profession, I, I don't think it's possible for them to be 100% uniform. So I think, um, you know, RCVS Knowledge is a great example of an organisation that covers the whole profession um, and can be used as a vehicle for people to sort of share best practice and and learn from from each other. Um, I do think, I mean, I say within my and the environment I work in within Vets now, we actually do have two slightly different checklists, mm-hmm. surgical safety checklists, one for our out-of-hours environments and one for our 24-7 um, referral hospitals, because they, they are very different environments. The team sizes are different, um, you know, the the some of the um, technical facilities are, are different. So to try and apply the checklist in the wrong environment it's, it's to be fair it's not hugely different but again you want to that you it's really important as we introduce checklists that they are seen as being useful to the team so if you're trying to use a checklist for as I said a, a very large referral hospital environment and put it into a much smaller team environment you can run the risk of alienating the team but because they say well you know I don't have an anaesthetist (laughs) that's irrelevant to me and then you've lost the confidence of of those people that the checklist is useful because it seems not relevant to their environment so actually I I think there isn't probably a hundred percent I think we we shouldn't aim for uniformity it's not desirable it's not desirable there's probably some key principles and I think the more we can share and think oh that looks like a good idea what that practice that the the better but actually it does I think they genuinely do need to be adapted for the different physical and team environments that we we see across the whole profession because it is it's hugely variable, hugely of course, variable. Of course. And, that, and that plays to a question I had about um, advocating the use of checklists. Obviously, there's a sense of ownership and the relevance that, yeah. that that's important. Are there particular uh, practices that you're aware of or practical means that in your own experience or, or that peers have introduced that have borne fruit in terms of reminding people about the benefit of checklists and daily practice or, or winning over some hearts and minds? Uh, well, I think, it's, as with everything, it's about communication and communication in a positive way that when they're introduced it's um it's about getting the whole team involved it's not about sort of uh you know you have to now complete another bit of paperwork every time you do surgery it's about sitting the team down and going through some of the stuff we've talked about today so um explaining the benefit and giving real examples Mm. of where 
mistakes have happened. Um, you know, swabs have been left behind in a dog's abdomen. You know, and trying to make them real. And actually, the more senior people we can get to speak up about the mistakes they've made, yes. because I think I think that is the one thing. As I said, intellectually, everybody knows that they wouldn't take they they wouldn't deliberately take the wrong leg off, or they wouldn't deliberately leave a swab behind. So there's sort of almost I think that of course I know I know that shouldn't happen, so it won't happen to me. And actually, the more that we can have people speaking out and saying, well, you know what, it did happen to me, mm-hmm. um, and it does happen, and it's 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 not deliberate, and it's it's um, you feel awful when it happens, but actually these are the things that we can put in place to or or the use of checklists will really help reduce reduce the risk of that so I know that you know within 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 vets now we've had over been there 10 years now and we've had um you know I can't tell you exact numbers but over the years we've had the odd situation where something has been left behind the dog since Mm. we introduced the surgical safety checklist there hasn't been a single incident in patients where the checklist has been used. So that's a resounding... Um, so it's a resounding... I mean, yeah, yeah. So, so I think it's about spreading that word, being honest about the fact that um, yeah, mistakes do happen and uh, thinking positively, seeing this as a positive way to reduce that rather than as a, a sort of, a, as you say, an administrative headache. So Amanda, we've talked a lot now about surgical safety checklists in, in humans. Um, are you aware of any published literature relating to surgical safety checklists? So obviously, there's a lot in the in the human field, as I said, and anecdotally within within vets now, we've we've seen a reduction in incidents. There's been one paper that I'm aware of um, from Sweden, actually, looking at um, over looking at 520 animals that had a surgery safety checklist used or not used, right. and they found they did their data actually backed up that presumption that it's going to be transferable, the benefit's going to be transferable over to the veterinary field, Mm -hmm. and that they found they had significantly more complications in the animals that didn't have a checklist used than that did. So it is early days, and as we all know in the veterinary profession, um, collecting evidence is um, can be a a challenge, uh, but it's starting, it is starting to come through, and I I would be very surprised if the strength of the evidence isn't added to over the coming years. Mm. And you've talked a lot about surgical safety checklists. Mm-hmm. Um, are you ever, any other checklists in use at the moment in the veterinary world? Yeah, so 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 good question. Um, so they're starting to one of the other areas that is being looked at, and where we do have uh, one paper, is looking at the uh, approach to animals being admitted to an emergency room with um, septic peritonitis. So this is a paper out of the the US uh, and we all know that when an animal has um, septic peritonitis not only do they need surgery, but also um, timely use of antimicrobials is mm. important. So this was a checklist used for animals that had suspected septic peritonitis as they came into um, the emergency room and then looking at the time taken to start to get those antibiotics on board. And they, they found that when they had a protocol for those animals, which again, this is where checklist protocol becomes a little bit blurry as we were discussing earlier but when they had a protocol that said when these uh, suspect animals came in 
here's your sort of checklist of what you should be thinking about, they did find that their, their time to the first antibiotic administration was significantly shorter. Right. So, so again, that's an area that uh, I think is worthy of further exploration. And in human medicine, there's lots of other areas being explored. I mean, with my background in emergency, I'm particularly interested. Um, there's a, a, a WHO, World Health Organization, trauma care checklist that um, is being used in human medicine now and that I think will be something that we would like to, well we're looking within vets now at how, whether that can be adapted for, for veterinary use and it's been reported as being associated with substantial improvements in patient care and also um, the uh, looking at, there's been a couple of papers from um, and the human medicine side for looking at deterioration of hospitalised patients and making a decision, um, a checklist to check through of when a, a hospitalised patient is deteriorating, do they actually need to go to the intensive care unit? Okay. So that kind of ability to recognise um, and take prompt action for patients that are, 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 if you like, going the wrong way. So again, I think that's an interesting area. Um, the other area that I think we'll we should be exploring uh, and that's uh, in human medicine I think they haven't really nailed yet either is actually the use of um, communication checklists for handovers mm. so we know that when patients are handed over between different clinicians that's a time when information's lost and errors can occur and I think there's still a lot of debate around the best way to do handovers um, but I think that's another area where I would anticipate that in the fullness of time some form of a checklist would would, would be useful because that is an area where I said um, errors are um, frequently concentrated around things that happen at handover. Yes. So essentially a, a non-clinical yes, checklist? Yes, essentially, yeah, communication but checklist. That could have great impact. I, I, I think so. I mean, my gut feel, again, I don't have any evidence for this, but my gut feel is we know, we know that errors um, can occur following that and, and it make, makes sense you're transferring huge amounts of information it's easy to forget stuff and again people get distracted during handovers and, and so on so all the factors are there that would suggest that uh, it might be an error prone moment and there is data to support that I think what we haven't done is go that next step and design a system yet that helps to reduce that or not that I'm aware of but I would strongly suspect that will be an area that would yield great great benefit. So Time is coming to a close. Can I ask you, given your presidential role, what to your mind is the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons' role in encouraging the use of checklists and also in monitoring their use potentially? So I, th I think that, that's a really good question because um, as, as we've been discussing um, a lot today, so much of checklist use is about that positive culture. Uh, and that recognition that you know we're not individual clinician islands that mm. we are part of that wider team um, and I think you know historically I guess um, you know and I, I, this is one of the things I still worry about the college is seen predominantly as having a more a, a punitive role for when things do go wrong and I think we as the college um, and working with knowledge are doing a lot of work um, around creating that more just culture within the profession, recognising that mistakes happen, that if you do make mistakes, it's you're not going to, don't be scared, you're not suddenly going to lose your rights to practice if mm. you make mistakes and are honest about them. And I think where the Royal, the RCVS can have a role is really speaking up increasingly loudly, which we're already doing, but continuing on that trajectory of um, promoting that just culture, 
uh, within the profession, promoting interprofessional teamwork um, and, and leading a positive culture. I think there might be a role within the practice standards scheme for the use of, of checklists uh, amongst other things that promote that team culture um, as being part of the uh, what's uh, evaluated during a practice standards inspection but I think that need, that I would certainly feel very strongly that should be framed in a positive best practice light. So Amanda final thoughts on checklists if I may. So well it's been great to, to spent so long chatting about them because it's a topic I feel very strongly about but I think it's really um, it's it's very timely and I suspect over the next few years we are going to it's part of an increasing movement from that very individual clinician knowledge and technical expertise focus which is always going to be important but I think has historically been the main thing we focused on but moving towards that much wider recognition of the whole team and system and process alongside that individual knowledge and expertise as being really important for for patient welfare and I think that will be um, uh, uh, in the fullness of time a real paradigm shift in terms of the quality of care we can give to the animals under our care. Amanda thank you so much for your time and for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you. For more information about checklists and for podcasts from RCVS Knowledge, go to our website at rcvsknowledge.org. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes and Podbean.